Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and for more than 10 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today's episode is part of a series we're recording for the ECRI and the ISMP Patient Safety Organization's Deep Dive Report. This year's Deep Dive focuses on issues of racial and ethnic disparities in care, and we're talking to PSO members and others to hear about their initiatives to fight against these disparities. Our guests today are from the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers, serving Camden, New Jersey residents to improve the lives of people with complex health and social needs. The Camden Coalition also works to help patients across the country through the coalition's National Center for Complex Health and Social Needs. We'll talk about how the coalition's mission is to improve care for people with complex health and social needs by implementing person-centered care programs that address not only illness, but also strive to overcome social barriers to health and enhance well-being. So to get us started, I will ask our two guests to introduce themselves. Great, thanks, Paul. This is Kathleen Noonan. I'm the CEO of the Camden Coalition and we're really happy to be here. Hi, Paul, I'm Natasha Dravid. I'm our Senior Director of Clinical Redesign Initiatives at the Camden Coalition. Kathleen, I'd like to start with you. Um, we're gonna talk in a little bit about the Camden Delivers uh, initiative specifically, but let's maybe take a step back from that. If you could help set the stage a little bit. Um, you know, you're, you're set in Camden, New Jersey. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Camden, uh, a little bit about your patients and, and uh, importantly, some of the major barriers to equity that you see among those patients. Sure, <clears throat> absolutely. And just one step back, I'll say that I came into Camden having spent 10 years at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is right across the river in, Phil in, in Philadelphia. And I'll say that I had a very sort of big system, um, uh, hospital sort of centric, if you will, um, view of these issues. Um, and, and coming into Camden um, was a challenge because we were thinking about some of the same issues, but from a small community-based organization's perspective. Um, so Camden, uh, New Jersey is a small city across the river from Philadelphia. Imagine the twin cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis. We are Philadelphia and Camden. Uh, Camden roots for the Philadelphia sports teams. Um, That's why we had you on. I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, um, and it, Camden is small, it's about 75,000 people in the city. Uh, about half of them are of Latinx or Hispanic origin and half are African-American. There is a small Asian American community, um, but the, the city is, is pretty much, you could say non-white. Um, the city is in a county that has over 200,000 people and then in a, um, really an area of South Jersey that, you know, is well over, you know, a million people. So um, we sit, even though we're a small city, we're um, next to a very big city. And so we have that sort of metropolitan feel, if you will. Um, Camden was once uh, a thriving RCA town. 
a thriving middle-class place and uh, really fell the way a lot of industrial cities fell in terms of losing jobs and white flight um, and is sort of grappling with that today with um, high poverty levels, um, uh, many, many, many people who are working but are working jobs that do not allow them to live in a way that can keep them healthy. Um, and, um, uh, you know, just some of the same problems that you see in a lot of urban areas, but not a very, unlike a big city like New York, where they're very, very wealthy and very, very poor, Camden doesn't really have that contrast at all. So thinking about that, that population you described, Kathleen, and a lot of the um, sort of social barriers that, that I'll say that really face the, the patients and the, the, the folks in that population, how does that play then into a health equity perspective and maybe some barriers that those folks face in trying to access care? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it, 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 it sort of smacks right into it, right? So um, since we've started, we, the Camden Coalition started in 2010, I would say that we started our care management work um, in a, a pretty organized non-pilot way starting in 2007. And pretty much from the get-go, we had an interdisciplinary sort of community-based team, nurse, community health worker, um, social worker. Um, and from the get-go, we actually saw health as just one of 16 domains that um, a person might um, want to work on um, to sort of improve their own well-being. And so we you know, put those domains in, in front of them um, and talked about that because we realized that there could be issues around housing or legal issues or, um, you know, food issues, any of those issues. And um, so in, even though we were introduced to people through a pretty traditional health issue, we knew because of the uh, so much structural racism, so much structural inequity that we had to really think about the other things in their life and work with them on what was the most important thing for them to fix to start, um, to be able to sort of go down the road of, of, of getting healthier. And then I know that the coalition in particular has, I'll say, reached beyond Camden and even beyond the region that you described of South Jersey and into southeastern Pennsylvania. Can you can you describe a little bit some of the more national reach and, and the national programs that the coalition has? Sure. I think in, you know, in 2016, we were lucky enough to get funding from um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, AARP was an early sponsor. Um, and the idea was that, you know, we were doing this work in Camden, but we knew that, that there were colleagues, peers, um, community-based organizations all over the country that were doing the work that we were doing. And so um, the idea was to sort of create a home for that work called the National Center for Complex Health and Social Needs. Um, and, you know, gather annually through a conference, but all through also through the National Center, be able to dispatch people either from the coalition uh, who had worked at the coalition directly on the ground here or other people who we recruited in who worked um, in similar programs, but perhaps their focus might have been in a rural setting um, or in a suburban setting um, and be able to dispatch them to other places around the country. So an example is Clear Lake, California, Northern California, very rural. Um, 
same issues uh, as Camden in many, many ways, but they manifest themselves differently. Um, and, uh, you know, just adapt to some, um, adapt some of the best practices from around the country to that type of setting. I mean, the key for us always is person-centered. It's always looking at health as just one domain and it's always um, interdisciplinary um, discipline with a small d, right? So, um, and also it's multi-sectoral, like those are the keys for us. And, you know, the, the name of the, the National Center is the National Center for Complex Health mm -hmm. and Social Needs. And, and I, I've heard you in other conversations use the, the phrase of a complex care provider. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? That sort of multifactorial, multidisciplinary? Yeah, you know, we, we are talking about that. And we, we realize, I think the more we talk about it, the more we realize, you know, our, 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 our client, our clients, because we we are we we still have clients every day on the ground in Camden and the region that we deal with. But in some ways, uh, the systems are much more complex, right? Than their their issues. They sort of come to us, and it's pretty. Um, I don't want to say simple, but what they need um, isn't as hard to figure out as getting it. And the getting it mm. is really hard um, because of the systems, and so. Um, that makes it complex, right? Being somebody that can navigate that, whether you're the consumer or you're um, the person trying to work with them is, is really what brings the complexity to it. And Natasha, I wanna bring you into the conversation uh, a little bit. Um, one of the initiatives that I'm, I'm betting touches really on that dealing with that complexity is this idea of the clinical redesign program. And I wonder if you could describe that program a little bit and what it means for those patients who are dealing with those, those complex health and social needs. Sure. So clinical redesign at the Camden Coalition was really born out of the work that we do directly with patients in the community. So as Kathleen described, we see these barriers um, that patients face over and over that aren't really about the patient. They're about the system and they're about how um, our healthcare providers and our social service providers deliver care um, and all of those systemic barriers that are part of kind of the fabric of our community. So clinical redesign is about identifying those patterns in the barriers and then working with our partners to reimagine and redesign the way care is delivered. So an example of that is um, one of our programs, the Seven Day Pledge, was an initiative where we knew from our own data that individuals who were on Medicaid and going into the hospital, if we could connect them back to primary care within seven days, that would decrease their chances of being readmitted to the hospital. So we knew there were barriers in the way. There was access barriers, so not being able to get an appointment at primary care, transportation barriers, opportunity costs, like not being able to get childcare or take a day off work. Um, so clinical redesign was, let's look at these barriers and systematically try to address them um, and do this at scale across our community. Um, so clinical redesign is about um, working in partnership to redesign and kind of get those barriers out of the way so patients can get the healthcare that they need at the right time and the right place. So then within that context of, um, of the clinical redesign, I know there's an initiative called the Safer Childbirth Cities. Uh, initiative that you know that the coalition leads, and I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what that program is, 
and who are some of the patients that it serves? Sure. So Safe for Childbirth Cities is an initiative designed to um, reconnect individuals or connect individuals to prenatal care. So it's born out of the observation that many um, individuals are going to the emergency department early in their pregnancies, especially we've noticed this for years in Camden City. And these individuals, they're early in pregnancy, they find out that they're pregnant in the emergency room, they might be four, five, six weeks pregnant, but then we, we don't see them showing up in prenatal care within that first trimester. So Safer Childbirth Cities is an initiative to try to connect individuals to prenatal care in the first trimester. What we noticed is that there isn't a workflow in the emergency room right at the point of a positive pregnancy test to connect that person to prenatal care. So we have recruited sites across um, both our city and our region um, to launch outreach workflows where individuals will get a phone call to pull them into prenatal care as soon as we see in the data that somebody had a positive pregnancy test. And so that must involve, um, I'm thinking, working not only with sort of that outreach to, to pull the patient into the system, but also with you know, providers throughout the region who can, that they can actually get to, right? All those, those barriers that we talk about, access to care and transportation, everything. So that must be sort of a really, uh, sort of a really involved network. Yeah, so we have um, recruited all of the prenatal care providers in Camden City, um, as well as um, a couple of um, community-based organizations that run Central Intake, which, which those organizations house a lot of community-based programming for pregnant and parenting individuals. Um, mm -hmm. And we are also, so those organizations are doing the outreach. It's not Camden Coalition staff doing outreach. It's actually coming from the OB offices or these CBOs. And everyone who gets a phone call to invite them into prenatal care is also getting offered a round trip um, transportation option, whether it's a taxi or an Uber, um, to get them to that first appointment. And we're giving each site a patient costs budget that they can use however they see fit um, to try to both you know, get that person into care, but also retain them in care. So whether it's some of our sites are doing different gifts um, at different points along, you know, a gift up the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, there might be an offer for some assistance with childcare. Um, and we're giving them sort of flexibility on how to design that incentive program um, to get people kind of hooked in and then, you know, retained in care. That really speaks to that person-centered initiative, right? Let, let's see what this individual patient needs that will help them overcome their barriers. Yep. And let's react to that. That's great. And Paul, I'll just say, having come mm -hmm. from a big hospital system, one of the things that surprises us at the Camden Coalition um, is that such a small amount of money, like $10,000, right? And $10,000 maybe means a lot to us as a small organization, but to these hospital systems, it's nothing. And yet, uh, you know, an OB practice within a, a major health system, having that, those kinds of flex dollars are so important to them and vital. And yet it's not something that is typical in their budgets. And, and so again and again, we find our partners willing um, and excited to work with us. And, um, and part of that is because of some of the flexibility that we 
uh, afford to them through the programs that we we develop. Well, that, that you know that, that's interesting, and I want to sort of tie that into something um, that Natasha mentioned, and, and Kathleen, maybe you can you can expand on this a little bit. Natasha mentioned um, you know that we we see in the data that the patients are you know uh, have had a positive pregnancy test, and I'm wondering how you use maybe that data, but I'll say data more broadly to, you know, sort of structure the program and, and drive some of the initiatives. And I'm wondering then, you know, to sort of tack on to the, the piece that you just mentioned, how you're able to track some of the programs that those providers are using with those flex dollars to see, is there something here that's particularly effective that we can then replicate and promote somewhere else, or at least let other people know, hey, this is something that has worked somewhere else, you may want to think about it. Um, we work pretty closely with our state's Office of Medicaid Innovation, um, and we are actually, we are designated what's called a regional health hub, um, which is a New Jersey statute, a designation um, where we receive Medicaid funding um, to, among other things, do some data analysis, um, both for uh, partners locally, but then also for the state. And one of the things that the state asked us to help them with was to look at pregnancies in our area and to understand the population that was delivering fee-for-service, right? That were not delivering through an MCO. And the question was, was this a population that was undocumented? And so they were coming in and they, they were always gonna be fee-for-service births given the inability to be able to put them on a, a, a public insurance program or, um, or were they people that really could be connected to an MCO and had they sort of dropped off? And what we found was that there were many, many more people who were connected to MCOs than we had thought. Um, and, and so that was the data piece that helped us understand that there were people that were, um, that were just sort of drop, dropping out as it were, right? That weren't getting prenatal care, that could be assigned to an MCO that have some care management responsibilities. And so sort of targeting them, I think the other interesting thing, and Natasha, you're closer to that data than, than I am, but we found that by and large, undocumented people were more likely to go in and get prenatal care, right? They were here, they were here for a reason. They want their kids to do well, right? They were really doing what they could to get prenatal care. Um, and so we take that data and then that's where Natasha's group says, okay, how can we design um, an intervention that can help um, using this data and um, with an eye towards replication? So maybe Natasha, I'll let you answer the replication part of that question. So the, the tool that we use to really operationalize some of this data-driven work is the health information exchange. And so through the HIE, we receive data from all of our local hospitals, as well as some outpatient data from our federally qualified healthcare centers. Um, we get data from our local jail clinic. Um, we get the Medicaid claims data um, pushed into our HIE, as Kathleen mentioned. Um, we get perinatal risk assessments, which is the tool that Medicaid uses anytime a woman enters prenatal care. Um, and so we have this really sophisticated integrated data set that allows us to take data from these various sources and put it together to, to have a holistic view of what's going on for a patient. But we can also use it to create 
kind of real-time population level views of what's happening at a community level. So um, we have a view every day of who's going to the hospital in the city of Camden. And we have clinical data points to tell us what are they going to the hospital for? We can slice that data on you know, past diagnoses, what's going on today, and we can build workflows that are real time and actionable that um, our healthcare providers can, can use at the point of care and in that moment. So um, I think you know, one of the ways through the regional health hub infrastructure that we're using this data is um, all four regional health hubs have these HIEs, these regional HIEs. So anything that one community develops in their HIE can be replicated to, to one of those other um, cities in New Jersey. So you mentioned, uh, Kathleen, that you know the, the coalition has been working for more than a decade now. But let's acknowledge we're recording this in sort of late 2021. So the last year and a half-ish has been in COVID times. Um, and I have to imagine that that has really upended a, a, a lot of things or at least changed them. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how COVID-19 has impacted, you know, existing initiatives, maybe given rise to new initiatives. I'm thinking about um, maybe work with COVID positive, the homeless population, um, vaccine hesitancy, all these things that we've seen become such a big issue in the last, like I say, 18, 20 months. Yeah. Um, so uh, a few things, um, and I'll um, uh, ask Natasha to talk about a couple of those. Um, in terms of um, upending, I think that we're sort of in the, uh, the boat where um, a, a lot of uh, people in the health space are, right? It's just constant. Um, and um, I would say that we were already a community focused provider so that um, our um, care teams were already community based. So we already had a lot of mobility in how we worked. Like we thought always about how did you get data when you were at a homeless shelter? Or how did you get data when you were here or there? So we were um, um, positioned actually pretty well. Um, uh, telehealth was not something that was hard for us because we would often have to talk to patients um, you know, in the jail, for example, right? So we were just, so for us, that was not a blip for us at all. We just kept moving. Um, but it did actually for us point out, point to some partnerships that we needed to strengthen. You know, we really needed to strengthen partnerships with our uh, county and city, um, uh, you know, health um, folks. There's a way that you can become, you can be in a bit of a bubble in the health system and the community-based organization. And because um, of how poorly public health is financed in this country, the public health system is sort of riding parallel to you, right? But mm -hmm. not as much um, interaction as maybe now we all wish we had. And we certainly, if, you, if, you, if I look at us now and I look at us a year and a half ago, you know, we are, on, you know, I say this, but we don't just know the leaders at the health department, you know, we know the people working for them and we know the nurses on the ground and we know the people who are running their mobile units and these are not new people, 
right? These are just people that we were working in parallel with and they were working in parallel with us, right? So I think that that is a great thing that has come out of COVID. Um, and I, you know, it, it, I don't see us going back, right? Because once you do that, you really understand that there needs to be more intersection between public health um, and healthcare. Um, so that, that's, that's one way that's been uh, really useful. On the, the vaccine hesitancy side, we started very early before the vaccine was available to really think about hesitancy. And we've certainly, you know, we canvas, we go door to door, we have ambassadors, we've developed pop-up clinics. But one thing that we've done that we don't hear too many people talking about um, that I'd love Natasha to talk about is vaccine hesitancy, but not on the part of the people who need to be vaccinated, but on the people who have to ask people if they need a vaccination. We see tremendous hesitancy um, around that conversation. Um, and so uh, Natasha, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So as Kathleen mentioned in the fall of 2020, before the vaccines were even approved yet, we knew this was going to be an issue in our community. So we developed a survey, not a paper survey, but a sort of conversation-based survey that we could have trusted uh, community health workers, um, healthcare providers, individuals across the community have conversations with the people they already had a relationship with to understand What's your posture towards this upcoming vaccine? How likely are you to get it? How are you feeling about it? Um, and so we were able to have 265 of these conversations across the region. And we heard, I mean, we had a lot of really um, interesting findings, but the thing that really stood out to us that we were hearing from our community was we want to, we want more information and education about the vaccine, and we want to hear it from our healthcare providers. So from there, we interviewed or we surveyed a large swath of the healthcare sector. So doctors, nurses, but also front desk people, people working in the call centers, medical assistants, LPNs. And we asked them, how do you feel about having conversations with your patients about the vaccine? And these were all individuals working in adult healthcare. And the vast majority of them said they had never received any training on how to speak to people about vaccine hesitancy. Um, many of them said they weren't sure it was part of their role or that they should be having those conversations. And the vast majority said there was no workflow for what to do if they encountered someone who was vaccine hesitant. So that was a mismatch for us hearing that the whole community wanted this information from their healthcare providers doctors were saying, we're not even the ones in the room to like, we don't see the patient until they've already encountered three or four people um, in the, you know, in the doctor's office before they come to us. Um, so there was just a huge opportunity there. So we designed a training um, geared towards all of the, you know, folks across the professional spectrum in healthcare settings to talk to them about how do you have these conversations? And it really focused on a lot of what we, our community-based team uses every day. So motivational interviewing, therapeutic use of self, open-ended questions, affirmations, building trust and having um, a safe space for people to talk about their feelings towards the vaccine. So that's been a huge area of focus for us over the last several months. I will just say again, because I have the contrast of 
uh, working 10 years within a health system, uh, our approach, which thinks about the very first person who talks to um, a patient as being valuable and themselves being part of the intervention is um, not typical. And, and one that I think uh, does result in um, a different experience. Um, certainly the seven-day pledge that Natasha talked about, we were able to show statistical significance in that. That involved um, training receptionists on how to think differently about um, getting a call about someone being discharged from the hospital, but it also included including that receptionist with the nurse and the doctor in the celebration when the outcomes changed. And I think healthcare needs to do more of that. Um, I think there are many, 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 many missed opportunities. We hear so much in, in all the work we do at ECRI with, particularly I'll say with, with primary care and, you know, and, and outpatient settings like that, we hear so much about the conflict between front of house and back of house, um, you know, front office and back office. And that, that you're right, it really is a very different view of the relationship there to, to think of them as one unified team rather than as, to use your earlier analogy, two teams working in parallel with each other. It, it is, and if, if, if you have your re receptionist and your you know, med tech thinking of themselves as part of the intervention, you're halfway there. Hmm. One of the things, Natasha, I wanted to pull on, and it's a theme that we've heard in, in a bunch of these conversations is, you know, you mentioned that as part of having those, those vaccine conversations, you had people in the community already who were already trusted within the community. How important is that versus, you know, the, 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 the opposite, I guess, being the extreme opposite being, you know, sort of a bunch of complete strangers parachuting in from Mars and, and, I'm going to come talk to you about the vaccine and isn't that exciting and and how so how important is it to have that existing relationship of trusted sort of uh, caregivers and uh, just community members yeah i think it's really important i think we learned a lot from contact tracing and how we had people cold calling right to and i think there's a lot of fear there's a lot of mistrust there's a lot of skepticism in the community um and on the flip side, there are a lot of existing relationships with all this incredible network of community-based organizations. We partnered with um, uh, an apartment building for older citizens in Camden. We partnered with um, the organization that runs the Needle Exchange and does a lot of work with people living with HIV and with drug use. Um, we partnered with the pediatric mobile van um, and all of these individuals were known entities um, that could have these conversations. So you weren't just asking someone to take a piece of paper and, and say like, on a scale of one to five, how likely are you? It was more about, talk to me, tell me, like, what are you thinking about the vaccine? What are some of, what's some of the misinformation that you've heard that's out there in the community? And being able to really spend 15 minutes um, in dialogue with someone who isn't just going to say yes, no, or um, kind of not be sure who you are, where you're coming from, um, that I think that was critical to us getting real information, real data that we could act on. Um, and I think, you know, with the, uh, the insights that came out of it, we were able to design to it. So it wasn't just about, I think some of the, the public messaging that we're doing is, is really important, getting out there, boots on the ground, but also I don't think we ever would have known to target 
call centers, for example, you know, people in the call center who are who are on the phone with people, you know, calling in to say, when is the vaccine available? Um, it just opened up so many opportunities to leverage those relationships. All right. So I always uh, like to wrap up these conversations by asking for something that people who are listening can do today in their communities to start advancing um, safety and equity and, and, you know, sort of doing that, acknowledging that they are not going to solve the whole problem today. <laughs> but, but if they're, you know, looking to either evaluate their programs or start something from scratch, what's, what's sort of step one in that, in that long list of things to do? And, and maybe Natasha, if, if you could go first, and then Kathleen, if you could follow. Sure. I mean, I think in, when thinking about programming um, with an eye for equity, one of the things we believe in with regard to clinical redesign is we have, we have data that we can use today, right? There's data that we can use to run um, retrospective analysis and get insights, you know, on, you know, claims. What are, what are claims telling us? Or what, are, what is this huge data set telling us about what's happening? But then we also have data every single day about who's who's coming into the healthcare system or who's not coming into the healthcare system. So what are I, I like to think about how do we design workflows that that allow providers to do something with the patient that's right in front of them or the patient that went to the emergency room yesterday that could get a call today. Um, working with individuals when they're in a catalytic moment of hospitalization. Um, working with somebody who comes through the doors of an organization. So really working towards what are real-time workflows as opposed to um, using these big data sets that maybe are, are anchored a year ago or six months ago. I think that's one answer. I guess the thing that I'll say is just to really see the whole team as part of the um, intervention. I mean, I know that what happens in health systems is you have a completely different management structure running the clinical team from the admin team and a lot of perceived power imbalance. And, um, you know, the um, there's so much talk now about community health workers and the importance of community health workers. And, you know, we tell people that most hospital systems right now are engined by people who could fit the community health worker definition, right? They're from the community. They have experience in that community. Um, they may be in jobs that, you know, aren't the highest wage, you know, they, they are struggling to make ends meet, like ask them their opinion and include them. Don't just wait to have a community health worker initiative that says that that's you know, the okay place to do that um, because that those receptionists are gold, right? And the call center folks are gold. And, um, and so, you know, we are, one of the things we do with the coalition is not condemn the system that exists today or the people that exist there today, but say, you know, like how can we include them so that they can have a better experience, the patients can have a better experience. So I would say that would be my advice. Don't, you know, include the person who's the admin for your department in the work. That's great. 
Natasha, Kathleen, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thanks very much for having us. Learn more about ECRI and the ISMP PSO from the ECRI website at www.ecri.org, where you'll also find our 2021 Top 10 Patient Safety Concerns Report, which features racial and ethnic disparities in care as the top issue. You can find out more about the Camden Coalition at camdenhealth.org. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.